And if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of 1 Timothy, the book of 1 Timothy this week and next week, we are concluding a series that we started uh, last fall on this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy and to the elders at the church of Ephesus and to the gathering, to the, the church that would come together each Lord's Day in worship in light of the resurrection of Christ. They would have heard this letter uh, read in its entirety, uh, containing instructions about um, the, God, the sufficiency of Christ Jesus, instructions about the way that a church should come together and worship uh, uh, each Lord's Day, and instructions about uh, leadership and eldership and deaconing and, and, and cautions about things such as false teachers and false teachings, things that would strike at the heart of the gospel. And we're going to see that again this morning. We saw uh, some of that earlier on in this series, and the Apostle Paul kind of circles back around, if you will, as we'll see in our text, and he exposes, uh, in my view, he exposes pretty definitively the ulterior motives of the these false teachers and the reason why they are uh, propagating a message uh, that is contrary to what, t uh, what Paul calls the sound words of Jesus Christ. And so I'm going to read this morning, chapter 6, we're going to look at the second part of verse 2. Uh, we looked at the first part last week, and I'm going to read down to verse 10, and then I'm going to pray, and then by God's grace we will see what the Holy Spirit wants us to see in his word. This is the word of the Lord, the Apostle Paul penning this under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. He says this, teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, verse 4, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Verse 6. But godliness, he shifts here, he counters here, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we'll be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. In verse 10, what we saw for our confession of sin this morning, Paul says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you again for your word. We thank, it, thank you that it's you who inspired it that it's you who has kept it pure in all ages, God, that we can have confidence that as we read it, Lord, that you really are speaking to us. And so help us to pay attention this morning, God. Help us not to grow numb or callous to your word. But Lord, we pray that your spirit, again, would use it, Lord, to 
to chip away the stone on our hearts that can, the callousness on our hearts that can so easily begin to form again. And give us that heart of flesh, Lord, that you did at the moment of our conversion, Lord. Help us to be sensitive to your spirit and your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Paul, as he begins to kind of close this letter down, uh, and again, we're, gonna, we're looking this morning, and then we're going to look one more week here at 1 Timothy, but he warns Timothy again of those false teachers that would teach a doctrine or a gospel that is, and this is Paul's expression, contrary to the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right, those words that, that not only make a man right with God, but also those sound words that produce true godliness, which is also a key component in our text this morning, true piety. Because true godliness, it, it flows from a heart that's been regenerated by the sound words of Jesus Christ, by the gospel of God. It flows from someone whose life has been forever changed by an encounter with Jesus Christ. And as we've seen, the false teachers in this church, they were, like I said a moment ago, they were striking at the heart of the gospel. They were striking at the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. That's what we see that's at stake here. That's why the Apostle Paul has brought it up several times in this letter. That's why he gave instructions to the Ephesian elders when we see the movement of the early church in the book of Acts. He tells the Ephesian elders that upon him leaving, fierce wolves would come in seeking to devour the flock. And sure enough, he was right. And he visits that. And he tells these elders and he tells this church how to deal with it. And in the first few verses here, we get a picture. We, we get a descriptor, if you will, of, of this vicious cycle. And, and we see Paul gives us the characteristics of these false teachers, what they're like. And he also gives the fruit of their teaching, right? The, 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 the outworking of their teaching, what their sort of teaching leads to in the end, and as we move through the text, we're also going to see, again, he's going to peel back the layers, layers to kind of show their motive. He's going to expose them to this entire church dealing with them definitively. But as we look at the text this morning, again, and as the Holy Spirit of God is, is using the Word of God to teach us something 2,000 plus years later, we certainly need to examine ourselves right, in light of the Scripture. And we need to ask ourselves the question, have we internalized the sound words of Jesus? Have we been changed by the sound words of Jesus? Now, I'm not saying that to make you doubt your salvation, but I bring it up because we need to be certain who we're devoted to, right? We need to be certain who we're devoted to. Have we truly been captured by Christ, His person, His work, the very Scripture that testifies about Him, all of Scripture, testifies about him. All right, the shorthand way to ask this question is, what's in your heart? All right, what's in your heart? And by heart, I mean it in the biblical sense, the, the center seat of your entire being, your, your inner self, your mind, your will, your affections, your inclinations, your meditations, your desires, your emotional life. What is in your heart? What's in your heart? And if you're taking notes, you can Jot this down. 
The condition of your heart matters. Right? The, I know that seems obvious to us, right? But in a practical sense, we live sometimes as if it's not obvious to us, right? Because we're so forgetful. Right? The condition of your heart matters. We must be saved and sanctified by our triune God according to scriptures. Okay, and James, in the book of James, he, he helps frame for us how we can ask that question about our hearts. And it's a, it's a very earthy passage. Uh, it's given people trouble. Perhaps even these, these false teachers abused it, but he, I, I think it can give us clarity to examining what's in our hearts, and you would be familiar with it if you've been in church life for any length of time. James chapter 2, starting with verse 14, he says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. James says, show me your faith apart from your works. I'll show you my faith by my works. James two fourteen to 18. All right, here, here's what James is getting at. All right, what's in your heart will spill over into your life. James isn't, he's not contradicting the gospel here by saying that somehow good works are the very thing that save us, right? The, the person that is hospitable being saved by their good deeds, that's not what James is, is getting at here. That, that would put James in the category of those false teachers that are again striking at the sufficiency of Christ Jesus, Right? James is holding up for us what should be obvious. He's holding up for us what should be obvious, which a growing, sincere, God-focused harmonization between faith and practice. Right? Good works apart from faith are like polluted garments, according to the Scripture. Right? Good works apart from faith are like polluted garments. Our good works, no matter how feeble and frail, when offered in faith, are sanctified by the Lord Jesus Christ. The Puritan Thomas Watson puts it this way. He says, men judge the heart by the actions. Actions without faith, that is. God judges the actions by the heart. That is the priority of faith. Right? If the heart be sincere, God will see the faith and bear even with the failing. Now, the condition of your heart matters. Good works devoid of faith, while it may bless others in God's common grace, it has no ability to make you right with God. Christ alone makes you right. Christ alone cleanses you from all unrighteousness. Faith without good works, as James would say, is an impossibility. It's an impossibility. A heart captured by our glorious Savior can't help but to cultivate what God has entrusted Right? A heart that's been captured by our glorious Savior can't help but to cultivate what God has entrusted. As the prophet Jeremiah said in Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 9, I don't think this is up on the screen, but you can just listen to it. The prophet Jeremiah says, If I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I'm weary with holding it in, and I cannot hold it in. Right? A heart that's been changed by Christ, a heart that's been changed by the gospel of God, couldn't dare keep quiet about how glorious and beautiful and good 
our triune God is. If you remember what these false teachers at, at Ephesus were, were, were peddling, it was this in summary. Christ is not enough to make you right with God. Right? If I just bottom-lined it for us, that, that it was, that's the essence of their message. Christ is not enough to make you right with God. And, and again, they were adding legalistic requirements. They, 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 they claimed that God demanded. Right? They were the type of men who would, have, who would have twisted and abused the very words of James that I just read you a, a moment ago about faith and good works. These false teachers, they themselves were claiming, thus saith the Lord, when in reality they were contradicting the gospel of Jesus Christ. And even more than that, they were manipulating the sound words of Jesus Christ. They were claiming that they had some sort of special knowledge that they had received from God that would shed further light on what God meant for Ephesus. And these teachers had deceptive, ulterior motives. And this... This is the characteristic of every false teacher. That's the characteristic of every false teacher throughout all time. There's really, there's really nothing new under the sun, right? Every cultic leader speaks in contradiction to the sound words of Jesus. Every false teacher claims that he or she knows the secret to knowing God or to being right with God or, to, uh, or of being at peace with God. And here in our text, we have the descriptor of that type of person, again, along with the product of their teaching, the outworking of what's in their corrupt hearts. The description, according to our text, is this. If you want to look back with me, verse 4, he's puffed up with conceit is one of the, the descriptions that we get. He's puffed up with conceit, right, which is to think more highly of oneself. The root word for this is smoke, smoke. Right? It's just one, it's just one big show. Right? He he's literally, these false teachers and their teachings literally wrapped in smoke. It's to be more mindful of what others think instead of what God thinks. And this kind of person hides behind fast talking. Hides behind fast talking, hides behind the sleight of hand, hides behind pitting others, uh, pitting others against one another, hides behind deflecting. This person on one hand thinks he's the smartest man in the room, and on the other hand is deeply insecure and hides behind a web of lies. It's all a smoke screen. It's a smoke screen, puffed up with conceit. The text goes on. It says this kind of person understands nothing, understands nothing. And, and this isn't that they, they don't have the ability to understand, again, in God's common grace, certain things that the Lord allows, but this is a lack of spiritual, experiential understanding, right? What we see here is a lack of spiritual, experiential understanding. It's a, it's a lack of firsthand knowledge is what this means, right? These false teachers have never experienced the power of, of God's Holy Spirit in their lives because they suppress what they know to be true, Romans 1, by their unrighteousness, right? By their lust for power, by their lust for control, by their lust for success, in a word, by their lust and their love and their worship of money, of wealth, what we're going to see in just a moment. Their understanding is darkened as it relates to wisdom, 
as it relates to interpretation, as it relates to application of God's Word. Because you need the Holy Spirit of God in order to do those things. Yet they keep lying. And, and, and they keep behaving as if God speaks to them when, in the, when, according to the Bible, what they really are is fool, fools. They're fools. They're foolish. The text goes on. This kind of person has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words. It's another descriptor of the false teachers. Now, this is an interesting one to me. These, these false teachers, they, they were domineering, and they loved conflict, and they loved strife. They, they probably tried to seem virtuous in, in, in the public eye when really they were wolves seeking to burn everything down for their own gain. Right? They had an insatiable appetite for controversy. They accused others like Paul and like Timothy of false teaching to make themselves seem more orthodox. And, and they waged a war... According to the scripture here, they waged a war on words and on the definitions of those words, always reinterpreting the words to fit their own sinister agenda. Did God really say is what the serpent said in the garden, and these false teachers are his offspring. They're his offspring. And this is all a part of the conceit. This is all a part of the conceit. This is all a part of the, the smoke, if you will. Right? And they kept the smoke going because it distracted their own conscience and it distracted others from seeing what was really going on. The, the chaos of their teaching and, and, and their lives distracted from the reality that these, te- that these teachers were disobeying the clear teachings of God. They were disobeying and contradicting the sound words of Jesus Christ. And they may have had some members of Ephesus confused. That may have been what was certainly going on in the church. The, the, the church body was confused by, by the chaos and by the smoke and perhaps even um, uh, beginning to get caught up in it all, if you will. But they didn't have Paul fooled, right? They didn't have Timothy fooled. And Paul's charge to Timothy was not only to be, not be influenced by them, but to not allow them to devour his people. To not allow them to devour God's sheep. And, and just to be really practical for us as is, is we evaluate, and hopefully that is what you're doing by God's grace, you're evaluating who or what we're influenced by. Right? False teaching, false teachers, they're the type of people that you walk away from more confused. All right? They're the type of people that you walk away from more confused. They're slippery they're ambiguous, they're cryptic, they're disorienting in conversation. And those characteristics are deflections from their motives and it's def- they're deflections from their character. And the product of that teaching, teaching that takes you away from Christ, teaching that's anti-Christ, teaching that makes you doubt the sufficiency of Christ in his words, they have the type of outworking that you would think Right? It has the type of outworking that you would think it deforms or distorts the soul. It deforms or distorts the soul. We see in our text the bad fruit of envy, we see here, which is resentment toward the success or possessions of someone else. Right? You, you, see, what, uh, you see others and what they have as a threat to you. 
right? And this is a spirit that I've seen, especially over the last years in our society, but I've seen it even cultivated in the context of the local church, envy, right? We see dissension, which is heated, bitter conflict and contention. We see in our text slander, is an outworking of this teaching, which is false negative claims about others, right? False negative claims about others, another one that we see in our culture. See all these in our culture, right? Evil suspicions is interesting to me, right? Which is, can be translated as wicked conjectures, wicked conjectures. This happens when we jump to conclusions about people before we have all the evidence. Isn't that fascinating? Right? When 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the Apostle Paul, in defining love for us, love believes all things. Love, love hopes. Right? Ultimately, we know that Christ is, the, is love. Right? And that, that we can only attain that sort of love through him through Christ sanctifying us. In addition to evil suspicions, we, we see constant friction among people who are depraved. Depraved mean corrupt or ruined in mind and deprived of truth, okay, because they lack understanding. And then this is critical. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Imagining godliness is a means, a critical word in that passage, means of gain, right? And and that's where Paul really, for us, he begins, and for the church of Ephesus here, he really begins to get to the heart of the matter, and he shows what these false teachers are really after, right? Godliness is just a means. It's just a means, and it's a means of a certain type of gain, uh, the the so-called appearance of godliness, this false piety that's determined and defined by these false teachers based on their so-called special knowledge from God, they believe will get them rich. That's the game part. They believe it'll get them rich, right? Godliness to them is only a means to the desired end, which is wealth. And, and with wealth, right, we can say power. With wealth, we could say influence, and certainly implied in there is success as well, right? Not again that any of those things are, are wrong in and of themselves when they're stewarded before the face of God as one who's going to give an account to God, but that's not what's going here, right? This quest, this lust for wealth, this lust for power, this lust for influence, this lust for a title, this lust for a reputation, this lust for respectability, this lust for being accepted into the broader culture. So let me contradict or downplay the soft words of Jesus and shape and fashion him into who I want him to be. That kind of stuff will put you in a place where you justify all sorts of cowardice and all sorts of wickedness. And certainly we have obvious examples of this, right? Probably think of, I don't know, perhaps you think of prosperity gospel preachers in your head, right? That could be an obvious example. But what of the, what of the teachers in seemingly orthodox churches that begin to idolize this sort of stuff? Because it happens, right? It can happen. It does happen, right? Just because we have an orthodox statement of faith doesn't mean that we're well guarded from that, 
there's so often a disconnect between, again, what we say we believe and the way that that affects our head, our heart, and our hands. And we don't need to be deceived as we're looking at a text like this. The propensity for this to happen is inside each of us. And if it's not for the grace of God, that's exactly where we end up, right? Apart from the restraining work of the Spirit in our lives and us putting to death the deeds of the flesh and us putting to death all those nuisance, nuisance lusts in our lives. But Christians, pastors, right, elders can be corrupted. Paul knew that. Timothy knew that. And again, we, we should know the own propensity in our hearts. If we don't, we're perhaps smoke screening ourselves, right? But we need the Spirit's help to be watchful. We need to stay close to Christ Jesus by our commitment to Lord's Day worship. We need to stay close to Christ by worshiping with our families the other six days of the week. The bottom line is we need to cultivate knowing Christ and being near to Christ in our lives. That's the way that the Holy Spirit guards you. That's how the Holy Spirit guards you. So what's in your heart? Secondly, true godliness, and these la- I'll have two more, and they'll go quicker than what just happened a moment ago. But secondly, true godliness produces contentment. True godliness produces contentment. And this is where Paul counters these false teachers. He says, but godliness with contentment, with contentment is what? Is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can't take anything out of the world, but we have food and clothing, and these we will be content. There's a few things that we see in this passage, and I'll try to shorthand them. The first is this, true godliness and contentment, they're inseparable from one another. True godliness and contentment, they're inseparable from one another. One commentator says contentment was used in classical Greek in a philosophical sense, and it meant a perfect condition of life in which no aid or support is needed. At a perfect condition of life in which no aid or support is needed, Solomon says it this way in Proverbs chapter 30, verses 7 to 9. Two things I ask of you, he's talking to the Lord, deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. You guys may know this. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who's the Lord? Or lest I be poor and still and profane the name of my God. Right? Contentment is good. Right portions are good for our eternal well-being. It's good for our soul. Right? Contentment is the view that the Lord has provided everything that we need. Right? It's, there, it's a quiet trusting in the good providence of our God. And this doesn't discount suffering. Right? It doesn't discount suffering. Right? But contentment is this deep-seated satisfaction in God's dealings with you in this life. Right? Knowing how he's dealt with you in Christ despite your sinful state. I have wondered how contentment in God, Christ being the, the all-surpassing value in your life, comforted someone like Horatio Spafford, if you've ever heard of that man before, and what was one of the worst times of his life. Right, unimaginable horror, poverty, and he's the one who penned the, the song, and, and I, I would consider it a lament 
Uh, he, he penned the lament when peace like a river. Many of you know the song to be called it as well with my soul. And what you may not know is that he wrote it after his daughters, four of them, the youngest one being 18 months old, uh, died in a sinking ship. Right, he wrote that, that song of lament after that. I can't imagine that grief. Although I know some of you in this room can this morning. And, and the contentment paired with godliness, while it isn't neat and tidy in this life, and we shouldn't fool ourselves to think that it's neat and tidy in this life, right? a, a life full of suffering and sin and sorrow, it's, a, it's a, a deep, deep in our body groaning that sometimes too much for words, that, that mourns poverty, that mourns suffering, but somehow, by God's grace, finds stillness and rest and peace like a river in our Lord, who's our only hope in this life and who's our only hope in the next life, right? As Peter says to Christ, when the multitude abandoned Christ, he and, and Jesus asks him, are you going to go with them? Right? And Peter says, where else are we going to go? Where else are we going to go? You alone, Christ alone, has the words of eternal life. Those sound words that somehow, I don't understand it, but Christians can experience immense poverty, immense suffering, yet still, by God's grace, can be held, can be comforted in, a, in, a, in affliction, can be comforted when your four daughters die in a sinking ship. Contentment that does not make sense to a world that's perishing. So Paul compares and he contrasts for us this so-called godliness, the, the false teachers that, that produced in them a lust for more. It produced envy. It produced entitlement. It produced bitterness. He compares that with contentment paired with godliness, gospel-generated godliness, which is Holy Spirit-generated godliness that produces true contentment. And this contentment happens. It happens because the Holy Spirit reminds us through the Word of God that we're sinners deserving of God's wrath while simultaneously testifying to us about Christ who acquired forgiveness for our sins and infused us with his own righteousness. Right? Contentment is a present reality for the Christian because your, your prize, your wealth, your treasure is Christ Jesus. And he can never be taken from you. He can never be taken from you. So true godliness and contentment are inseparable from one another. Secondly, more quickly, we own nothing. We own nothing. Right? That, that should humble us. When my kids fight over what toy belongs to them, I remind them that they don't own any of the toys in the house. And not just because I pay for the toys in the house. But what we try to be diligent to teach them is that God owns the toys. That God is the owner. And, and then I think of, of how we as adults have the same temper tantrums over our grown-up toys because we feel we have a right to them. Right? We feel like we own stuff when in reality we don't. We're temporary caretakers of God's stuff living in God's world. 
And we should leverage what we have to advance his kingdom. And we should hold what we have with an open hand. Even the relationships that we have, even our own health, even our very lives, even the lives of our loved ones, we're not entitled to any of it. Everything belongs to God, and it's a grace from him that he would let us sinful, broken creatures touch any of it. And in his graciousness of allowing us to manage his stuff, we also, we don't want to be like the servant who buried his talent in the ground instead of leveraging the talent and multiplying it, Matthew 25. We should be fruitful servants of what God's entrusted to us. We should be fruitful servants. And then third, again, this is just kind of underneath the contentment and, and godliness piece, right? Not only do we not own anything, but everything we have, and I've mentioned it just a moment ago, everything that we have is because of God's providential hand. Everything. All right, we didn't pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We're not self-made. Right? I mean, I'm not negating hard work. We should work hard, right? Work was instituted before the fall, and it was declared as good. Right? And, and we have to labor now in a fallen thorns and thistles world. But everything that we have is because of God's providential hand. That should humble us. That should humble us. We're weak. We're needy. We're dependent people on the Lord, whether we know it or not. The only reason that we're taking breaths right now is because our sovereign God is allowing us to breathe. Right? That should be a humbling reality. It keeps us from looking down on others. And, and it should keep us from despising the success of other people as well, right? Any fruit that comes from our labors is from the grace of God. Psalm 127, the first part of verse 1, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build, build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Some translations say, unless the Lord establishes the house, those who build it, those who labor, labor in vain. And then lastly, you become what you worship. You become what you worship. If I can put it another way, organizing your life around anything other than Christ is idolatry. Organizing your life around anything other than Christ is idolatry. Again, the worship of lesser gods. It disfigures your soul, and it leads you to calling what is good evil and what is evil good. I mentioned Smeagol, I mentioned Gollum last week, and the corrupting power of the one ring and this lust that he had for it and, and how it took a hobbit and, and shaped him into something decrepit that led to his demise. But look at those last few verses. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and it's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. All right, Paul, here, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, he peels back these layers, these motives of the false teachers, and it's plain to see for anyone who has eyes to see here, Right? He's put them to open shame in front of the church. They desire their God, which is wealth. Right? They love money when they should love God, and it's led them down a path that leads to all sorts of wickedness, all sorts of evils, truly a ends-justify-the-means sort of people. And look at the text to see the path that it leads them on. Ruin, destruction, all kinds of evil, right? away from the faith, 
into the arms of many pangs, right? This is what happens when you take a good thing to be stewarded, like wealth or like influence and the various resources, when you take something like that and you bow down and you worship it. This is what happens, right? This is where it leads to eventually. Every time, no exception, this is where it leads to. Right? Even the seeming prosperity of the wicked, right? that we see a lot of the psalmists lament. You also see the psalmists discern their end because we all give an accounting to God. And there would have been two different types of people influenced by these teachers at Ephesus because today there are two types of people that are influenced by teachers and teachings like this. The first type is a true victim, and maybe you've been a victim of this sort of teaching and this sort of uh, the, the, the characteristics of a person that shepherds this way. But the, the first type of person is a victim. They're sheep being devoured by wolves. Right? These the Lord will, will preserve through the ministry of under-shepherds who are willing to call out false teachers, who are willing to call out false teaching. Right? These victims will not be finally devoured. They won't be finally devoured, but they may be maimed, right? They may come out of a church context really wounded and really hurt. And for these believers, the Lord will restore the years that the locusts have eaten, Joel chapter 2, verse 25. And the second type, though, are those who Paul says elsewhere have itching ears. We see that in his second letter to Timothy in the church of Ephesus. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 2 to 4. I'll just read it to you quickly. For, there, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves. They'll gather for themselves. They'll go out and find these sorts of teachers for themselves, right? Teachers to suit their own passions. And they'll turn away from listening to the truth, and they will wander off into myths, right, into fables, into to stories that, that, again, lead them away from Christ, not to Christ, right? And for this group, false teaching, false teachers, it's God's judgment on them. It's God's judgment on them. These false teachers, they served only to solidify their lusts and desires, right? That's why they accumulated. I want to hear from someone that can tell me that my wicked desires are righteous before God, Right, and we have ample evidence of that. Right, and they're only venturing down a path of, of being further hardened by sin. They're venturing down a path of getting what they think they want, but what will turn out to be their ultimate end, their ultimate doom, the eternal wrath of God. So we circle back around to the question this morning. Right, what's in your heart? What or who is your chief desire, which is to say, have you internalized the sound words of Jesus Christ? A few takeaways for us this morning. How you live indicates what you believe, right? An orthodox confession of faith, and this is, this is a problem that, I, that is, is all over the place in, in local churches. An orthodox confession of faith is a dead one if it doesn't animate your life, right? You're, you're, we say this a lot here. Your theology should influence your philosophy, the way that you labor, the way that you work. Remember, Christ touches everything, right? Christ touches everything. Have you internalized the sound words of Jesus? Secondly, 
pay attention to the habits in your life that cultivate discontentment, or I would even say are the evidences of discontentment, and forsake them. Forsake them. Confess them to God and forsake them. Three, there's nothing wrong at all with wealth. There's no glory in poverty theology, but God grants wealth so that it may be leveraged for his glory and the advancement of his kingdom. We are obligated to steward what God gives us well. Four, is your life organized around Christ? Would your wife, husband, children say so? Examine your daily, weekly rhythms, how you use your money, how you spend your time to see where your priorities are. We go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you again for time in your word. We thank you for, the, for your gospel, Lord, that really is sufficient now and forever. And Lord, help us to forsake those things that cloud that perspective for us, Lord, and help us to rest, perpetually rest in your son, Jesus. And we pray all of this in his name alone. Amen. Well,